Welcome to the Classical U podcast. I'm Jesse Hake. I'm the director at Classical U. Classical U is a subsidiary of Classical Academic Press, a curriculum and monograph publishing company. At Classical U, we provide training for teachers and parents interested in learning more about classical education, how to deliver this method in your classrooms, in your homes. I mostly spend time talking with presenters and live learning event guests, and we look forward to sharing more with you as you tune in. Thank you. Thank you, Christine, for coming to be on the Classical U podcast and as a presenter uh, visiting and recording with us today in uh, the Women in the Tradition course with your lecture on Sappho. And you are a professor of poetry and uh, have many other roles I'm sure we'll get into. I'd like to hear about your current work and uh, your teaching and uh, whatever you might be able to share about writing. Uh, but uh, first of all, what is um, a little bit you can tell us about the lecture that you just delivered. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's, thanks for asking. I, it's always so good to do things with um, Classical U and and Cap, I, I love what it asks of me, you know, because I actually learned a lot from doing it. Um, as I mentioned in my lecture, I'm not a classicist. So Sappho, I don't read Sappho in the original language or anything like that. But um, what I particularly found interesting was thinking about the lyric and the notion of the lyric and how it changed over the years, how it began, but also just thinking about what it meant to live in that culture and how much your whole life was integrated, um, how liturgical life was and poems were, um, how much they had an audience built in, and the way that poetry was tied to gatherings and religious rites and celebrations and feasting. And I mean, I think there's a lot about that culture that would have given me the heebie-jeebies. Um, and even as I read about it and like study it, I think, oh, it comes with a real price tag. But, um, but, you know, Lewis and Tolkien said that Christians were the last pagans. Um, and I think this is what he's talking about, is that we are seeking to create a vital communal liturgical life that reimagines time and place and season as sanctified beyond our individual lives towards God and an understanding of the cosmic realities that pierce our daily lives. And then the daily life gets gathered up, as Charles Taylor would say, into those larger things. And they co-inhere, um, or inhere is just the word, really. Um, and that is, you know, that is what a sacramental life is. And so I think that ultimately, as Christians, I know for myself, this is what I am trying to re-enter and I know that I'm even my children are better at it than I am because I had because I'm human I had some of these cyclical rhythmic things but they were very individualistic and now that I have the church um, she helps us as a couple as a family to make time have the gravity that it ought when we're paying attention, I guess you could say. And so I think that's what I liked about the course. I mean, the lecture that I just gave is it made me rethink about the original context of a discipline that I've been practicing for 25 years um, that is forgotten and that even in my own education, no one told me about. So, I mean, I'm very educated as a poet and no one once mentioned this. Um, and that's the other thing I would just say is that it, for most of us, what we've learned, we've kind of gotten the entry level or the next level education. And that has equipped us to go find some more that uh, we are primarily equipped for because 
we had the groundwork laid and it helps us to kind of contextualize. You know, we have some rocks in the stream and we can now put some more rocks in the stream. And so that's what my study of Sappho and of um, the Greek lyric and the way it changed and the way it was introduced to me in the 20th century um, struck me. Great, thank you. I'm even more excited to hear about that, to, to listen to this lecture uh, than I was before. That's uh, <laughs> wonderful. What are some of the uh, areas of teaching uh, that you've been involved with most recently? I know um, most of your professional life involves uh, college-level teaching, and uh, you spent some time in Orvieto recently. But uh, what are some areas of teaching uh, and subjects, you know, courses that you've been involved in recently? I, I Yeah, I taught at Messiah for over 20 years. I was the director of writing for the last seven um, and teaching in the English department. Um, before that, while my kids were growing up, I did a lot of going into their classroom and um, uh, teaching poetry because it was sort of what I liked, what I had, what I had to offer. Um, you and I got to work on things together uh, in those years. That's where we met. Um, and we were intuitively, we didn't have the language for it, but we were intuitively reaching for embodied learning in relationship to literature and poetry in particular. And we came up with some things during that time that I still use and I still um, understand even better now why I wanted to find them and why we found them together. Um, most recently, I taught a course in Orvieto on the Aeneid and the Georgics um, of Virgil. And it was meant, you know, it was teaching the Aeneid in Orvieto, which is in Umbria, which is a, a part of the land that uh, that is mythically present in um, in the Aeneid, and um, I before that I stopped in Croatia and went down the coast so that I could also see Illyria and the some of the regions that Aeneas came from, and um, we read the whole Aeneid aloud to each other. There were five of us, four students from uh, it was a Gordon College program, but they were from different colleges, Wheaton, Gordon. Um, and so we read the whole thing aloud. We had 16 days, three hours a day. And I sort of flipped the classroom so that um, all the reading we did in each other's presence and we narrated so that we would read aloud and then we would narrate what just happened. And then they would go home for homework and work on some of the things they had questions about researching that and um, also doing keeping a florilegium and um, responding to that, meditating on some of those things that made it into their commonplace books. Um, that was a tremendous experience, very much tied to this idea of embodiment. How do we let literature be what it is? Um, how do we let it engage us as creatures with bodies and not just intellectualize it, not just analyze it, chop it up, feel like we need to say something smart about it. How do we let it sink into us first before we offer even an opinion? What is it saying just at a very basic level? You know, so often I've been in so many classes where that didn't happen, you know, and um, these students told me that they, it was the first time they ever understood an epic. And these were people who had taken classical literature courses at the college level. So, and it had nothing to do with me because I am not a master teacher of the epic. It had everything to do with the way we were doing it together. It took time, it took concentration, it took investment in each other and in the text, um, but it was an absolute rewarding situation. Um, absolutely rewarding. Uh, so it, we did that, and they all wrote beautiful papers. Um, and then we, then I'm about to teach a course on the Psalms and poetry to students at an Anglican seminary called the Neshota House in Wisconsin. And um, this is a place where there are about 40 residential seminarians, but then people come to do these week-long residencies that are month-long courses, and I'm teaching one of them. I'm teaching people that presumably are thinking a lot about ministry 
and I'm arguing for the education of the poetic imagination. I'm showing the way that the poetic imagination was engaged in the Psalms and in our deepest poems um, as Christians and Jews. And then I'm going to show how that's been embodied in the tradition, George Herbert, um, Gerard Minley Hopkins, and then we're going to look at some contemporary poets, including Taheem Bajess and Scott Cairns and um, uh, Elena Schwartz, whom we've shared before, um, just so that people have an education of the poetic imagination during that time period. We have five and a half hours a day. So um, they're starting that reading now, and then we'll spend a week together, and then they'll do some work after the week. So the core, um, I'm going to circle back to the first course you talked about, um, the Oroviedo experience. The core aspect of that as embodied learning is just the reading out loud together. Is that right? Um, just the commitment, investment um, to actually... Uh, read together. And of course, the place and your yes. own journeys, uh, you know, enrich that significantly. And that's an embodied aspect. But this could be done in um, you know, the core element of it could be done anywhere. Absolutely. How did the um, how did your own journeys because the students didn't go with you uh, to Croatia? And, uh, how did that uh, inform your own reading, you know, this time through with these students and, and help you as a teacher to have that? Well, I had this impulse that I needed maps, you know? I, I had read the Aeneid, um, and I was terrified to teach it. And I, you know, it's something about teaching something that's not in your language, even if you are teaching it in your language, it's really scary. But I had this feeling of, I need a map, I need a map. And the books I was reading the Aeneid in didn't have a map. Um, so I got a map and then I went to Croatia and I, it just suddenly just made so much more physical sense of, okay, this is what we're imagining Aeneas did. This is where Troy is. This is where Illyrium is. This is Carthage. This is um, the Peloponnesus. This is um, Latium. And, and, we would do this regularly, you know, like even now in my head. And I had this great experience. I was teaching um, next to Jim Zingarelli, who's Italian, but is American. And um, we were sitting at lunch one day, which is one, another embodied thing that we do in that place is eat together every day. And um, he was drawing on the placemat, the map of Italy. And I just remember thinking, this is a kindred, an intellectual kindred spirit because that is exactly, he's a sculptor, but that is exactly what I needed to teach this book and needed myself to prepare is this sense of physically, what is the space that this book inhabits imaginatively that I need to inhabit physically in order to enter that imagination. And I think before I just felt so left out I just felt like there was doorway after doorway that I couldn't make it through, or it was like a mountain. I just couldn't climb to even start. Um, so that is what was helpful to me about Croatia. Although on a separate note, unrelated, I, I really wanted to understand Eastern Europe better and understand just the Balkans and that whole East-West piece. Um, and I will say that that does really inform, I think, the Aeneid too, is the East and West. And what is it like to be from Asia Minor and then move into um, the West of, you know, Rome? And um, how, how do we understand those differences, those similarities? And also a, a subject that I feel pretty impassioned about, which is what is the West? I mean, it's, it is not... It is not, you know, white Europe. I mean, the West is, uh, you know, it includes Troy, which is Asia Minor. It includes, you know, so many, um, you know, Carthage, uh, not only Aeneas, but Dido. And, uh, you know, uh, it, 
that felt fruitful to the Aeneid as well. So how does that, um, <clears throat> I think it's a two-part question I'm, I'm following up with. Um, how does that experience for you, which you've just relayed, um, I think, um, dynamically and it, and it, and it makes a great deal of sense, but how does that show up for the students? So you've enriched your relationship to the text as a teacher. Um, and, and the, the two part question is, um, <clears throat> did the students have, um, their own experiences just being in Orvieto, you know, um, that, that, that place added to the embodied learning experience for them? Yes. So one of the things we were also reading was the Georgics. And one day we took the train over to a small town not far from Orvieto to spend the day. And this was with the visual artist and not just the humanities students. I was teaching humanities students. Jim was teaching the, the visual artist. Z is what he calls himself. And um, we call him. And uh, they were sketching while we were reading aloud, and they were listening to the reading. We were reading the Georgia section on vines, and we were in a vineyard um, by um, cre created, built up over many years by a Dutch couple, um, and that was this primary embodiment of we are in a vineyard reading about you know, reading from Virgil, who was in a vineyard like this and um, was uh, writing about it. And um, then as well, we went over to um, Rome and we saw in the Borghese Museum, we saw um, the sculptor, sculpture of Bernini um, of Aeneas carrying his father with the household gods and holding the hand of his son as he was fleeing Troy. So the students all experienced this and not just the ones taking my class, but all of them. And then um, we also went over to Livia's garden. Um, Livia married to Augustus, um, emperor during the time that Virgil was living. And, and Livia's garden was this um, wall, all these walls painted with a garden of immense sophistication. I mean, immense first century AD, BCE, or CE, and um, uh, apparently when they would go to be cool, they would go into the basement, and the basement was painted with a garden because they weren't in the garden because this was the summertime in Rome, very hot, and um, it's likely, very likely, that Virgil was in that room eating with them because he was supported by the court of Augustus. And so um, we also went to that place and spent hours there and had it introduced to us in that way. So you see what I mean? It, it, part of studying abroad is this notion that we can learn about other people and other places when we follow in their footsteps um, and that's an embodied way of learning. And the students were experiencing that to a maximal degree. Thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, what, part of what I'm uh, hoping to achieve, uh, school administrators, you know, that, uh, you know, might be listening to a Classical U podcast, uh, it's worth, you know, wh why is it worth sending your teachers uh, for this kind of experience? Um, I think it's more obvious to us, you know, if you can figure out a way to send students with their teachers, uh, you know, but even um, that secondhand <clears throat> experience um, of if a teacher can can have this experience, what do they bring back to their in all of the teaching that they do? You know, after after that, um, it's kind of astounding how um, <clears throat> this can transfer. My my own father right now is in Israel. Uh, it's the mm -hmm. first time in his life I've never been there. He's with a group of students and sending pictures back to the family of his time in the Holy Land. Um, you know, Bethlehem and Nazareth. And, mm. um, the, just the fact that he's my father uh, and he's there means something to me. And, mm. um, and I think uh, we have these experiences with our teachers. Um, students um, can sort of catch um, a sense of their own connection 
to a place having never been there just through the teacher's love for it if the teacher's been there. So I, I think there's so many uh, layers and aspects to this, but what would, what would you sp say specifically to, um, you know, a school administrator, uh, why, why this is worth investing in? I think it's more obvious for if you can get, you know, organize a student trip, but, but maybe uh, even just for teachers. I'm really glad you asked because um, I taught in this program in Orvieto for a decade and then Chris was able to come up and meet me there for the first time. And, um, you know, our, we didn't, our family didn't have the money to go there. The way that we did it was I went and taught and every time I taught, our children would earn the money to fly over with me. And then after that, they would just join me and, um, Chris got to come last. <laughs> so when he did finally come, he just loved it so much. And he said, I have to start something like this for classical schools. This is astoundingly um, remarkable. And so he started a track for the students and a track for the teachers. And over the years, we would one of us would attend each one. And what we discovered is that... Um, you know, the teachers are the best recipients of this attention because, first of all, they have waited a long time and they know the value of it. It is precious to them. They are um, pilgrims who have, or pioneers, you know, who've been on the frontier to get here. And um, they left something secure you know, to get here. And, and here is precious. Um, they've studied, they've prepared, and um, it really does change their life. It becomes a singular moment in their life that um, there's a before and after, too. Um, these are people who have wanted something better for and, and gone out and sought it. And um, cultivated it within themselves something that no one gave to them and now they're giving to others the thing that they wish they had and so the preparation spiritually to receive something like this is great whereas you know for a 17 year old 16 year old it, that person has to be pretty extraordinary and um i would say even not spoiled Basically, and who can afford to do it? Mostly people who are not extraordinary and who are spoiled. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but you know what I mean. To do it as a 45-year-old teacher is very different than to do it as a 16-year-old student. That when your parents paid for the trip. Um, so, uh, but, but yes, what happens is, and this, this, you inhabit those spaces. Uh, ever after, you return to them. The majesty and the the um, craftsmanship and even the prayers um, of those places that are thousands of years old, they kind of come back with you and you experience them again in memory time and time again by virtue of your maturity and your love and also your delay, delayed gratification. So sometimes I find myself just being in a certain moment in my life and going back to one of those moments to something I saw, you know, whether it's the Pieta or, um, or, uh, uh, I don't know, San Francesco, uh, Assisi and, um, the little caves where he would go up and pray and they were so small he couldn't even stand up. Um, things like that, I returned them in my memory um, when I'm giving something to students and I, I describe them, but it also just enlivens the texture of the artifact that I'm trying to give them by virtue of my conviction and experience and love and um, the precious place that they hold in my imagination. Great, thank you. Um, you referenced uh, Chris going last. I should probably uh, awkwardly, retroactively, um, if for anyone listening, um, you are married to Christopher Perrin yes. uh, at Classical Academic Press here, which is, of course, uh, the um, the parent company for uh, Classical U. And um, 
we we all uh, live together here in, in uh, Camp Hill area as neighbors and friends as well. Yes. Um, so some of those references to working <laughs> working together in the past between you and yes. I and uh, and uh, to Chris and your family. Um, that's the context. So jumping back to the uh, Nashota House uh, course uh, with your uh, with primarily seminarians, you referenced um, cultivating the moral imagination that, that you wanted to sort of uh, facilitate and make a case for that. Um, are you primarily referring to them as uh, adults possibly going into ministry and their own ongoing cultivation or um, is it also a part of their potential ministry that as a minister, they would be in some way responsible to help cultivate the immoral imaginations of their uh, church communities? So I did call it actually the poetic imagination, not the moral imagination, but I'm really glad that you made that substitution. My slip up. Yes, to, to yes. put it to good use. Uh, because, of course, um, you know, with Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton and MacDonald um, and Sayers, I believe that the moral imagination cannot grow without a poetic imagination. And I think that this has radically been truncated and um, cauterized in, um, the, in contemporary education. Um, and so I, first of all, want these influential people in the life of the church to have a space, maybe a meadow, you know, to experience this in, unfettered and uninstrumentalized, so that they get to, you know, we're going to do a lot of reading aloud together. We're going to chant psalms together um, in plain song, uh, which they'll be doing in chapel, but we'll do it in our class as well. There's a daily chapel. Um, and... I think I want them to taste, you know, there's that passage that we love so much in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want them to taste the Lord. Um, one of my um, young, longtime friends, I met her when she was in kindergarten. <laughs> She's in graduate school. Um, she gave me this beautiful uh, description of how sometimes in the hymns of the resurrection, um, you know, when, when Christ is, is uh, displayed um, as saying, you know, do, do not lament me, O mother, um, there's a certain tune to that. And when you hear that tune, you taste um, so many things. You taste their relationship. You taste her humanity put to these purposes you taste this um, is the mother of christ the mother of christ yeah, yeah. that the, her her milk so to speak you mm. you taste her um loss and passion and then you think of your own and you know all these things are bound up in that tune and those words and um i want that kind of experience to come back into the experience that we have with each other and with language and 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 words and song and scripture. Um, Dana Joya recently wrote a remarkably good essay on poetry and um, Christianity in First Things. And basically he says 30% of scripture is poetry. You cannot be a good Christian. He, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing here a faithful Christian without knowing how to read poetry. You can't read your own scripture without knowing how to do it. You can't relate to it properly. You don't have the right disposition. So anyway, I can go into, and we are reading that essay, and we're reading other essays um, of Il like Ilk. We're reading Stratford Caldecott, for instance, and Rowan Williams. Um, we're reading Pope Benedict, who um, just died. We're reading um, um, Malcolm Geet. Uh, an Englishman who, who is a poet and a songwriter. Just all these people who take this as a given that to be cultivated as a human, as a Christian, you really have to taste and see a thing. And then it grows in you. And that tasting and seeing gives you that deeply rooted assurance, that analysis and argumentation and um 
syllogism, as important as those things are, and I'm not saying they're not important, doesn't lend you. So if you don't have something grown in your heart, in your mouth, in your ear, you might it might not be able to keep growing. The syllogism itself doesn't make it grow in you. And so I just want to give people time to, you know, remember. I think it's a remembering because we all have this. For me, it was, you know, at the age of 12, reading all the Psalms, reading through the Bible and I'm just feeling included. Um, and I think most of us who are Christians in our middle age had that experience. Um, but I think we have to remember it and we have to think what would it look like to self-consciously cultivate this in ourselves and also in our children and our congregations. So the majority of what you're saying is, um, you know, an experience for them uh, as, as um, students in your class, uh, many of whom would be in the ministry, but to, to bless them and to um, sort of expand their horizons on what's so significant about this kind of um, prayerful, liturgical, contemplative way of being with themselves and with others. Mm -hmm. But um, you are also hoping, you know, they would they would take it into their congregations. Um, how might how might some of this be applied in either, uh, you know, congregational setting or, or classrooms by mm -hmm. teacher, teachers? Yes, and I will just say that I'm building the intellectual framework for it outside of class. And this is generally a first answer to what you're asking, which is try to build the intellectual framework outside of class and the experiential framework in class. So by what they're reading in advance. So they're reading arguments about mm -hmm. this. And they're beautiful arguments, mm -hmm. but they're reading arguments mm -hmm. first. And then in class, we're reading aloud, we're reciting, we're um, uh, doing a poetry liturgy, which, which you and I came up with. We're um, chanting psalms. Um, and, and so all of that is stuff that I'm making happen. And it's a primary form of contact when we're together. And we're experiencing these texts communally. Whereas to read them out of class and then come talk about them in class is really different. It's, um, it, it's an intellectual activity. Um, so that's a primary, and I'm not saying, there's nothing wrong with intellectual activity. Um, this is why I'm here, right? This is what I love, but um, there's something that's prior to it. And um, I think then one of the other things that I do is I, I've tried to introduce this idea of participatory reading, where we read aloud and then we echo back things from the text that we are attracted to. And in that echoing back, we don't comment. We just say what the poet said. And what happens is this remarkable thing. You just begin to steep in it. You know, you just begin to be immersed. And the interesting thing is we all want this immersion and we are suffering from the lack of it and we don't know how to get it. You know, and it's why in church when people read aloud, which is one thing, you know, read scripture aloud, um, we like it. And I can tell you, I taught at Hopkins before I taught at um, Messiah. And all the students who had had a church experience were comfortable with reading aloud. And all the ones who hadn't, and it didn't matter what their church experience was, were not. And so this really, this is a form, this is a, a, a way of being cultivated, is to read aloud and develop your ears and to do it communally. And then to start um, and give yourself time. That's the other thing is get time with the words, with the text, with the rhythms, with each other. And then slowly build out of that what you know. And what I always tell my students is, you're a lot smarter than you think you are. You think you have problems reading. You think you have problems with focus. But that's not really the problem. The problem is that you haven't been given the chance to be in something and then to construct out of that. You're asked to kind of be smart. Be a smarty pants. Get there fast. And, you know, David Smith has done all this great research on how fast we expect responses in an American classroom. Um, I mean, it's seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, and That's we do in not his book more. on Christian teaching. Yeah. yeah. 
And he's written numerous others, and, yeah. and I've heard him speak about it regularly. And I think this is kind of what he means when he says that education is meant to be a garden. It's meant to be something that we kind of come inside and dwell in and and experience and, and not just a um, machine, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> or I don't know, maybe think of something more positive. But so I guess... That's the first thing I would say is, can you find some practices that that remind people, well, that give them these opportunities and remind them that this is something we want and desire and that ignite their affections along with their mind and that rely heavily on communal experience. So it's, we're not looking for one person in the room to be smart. We're looking for all of us together. And so then when I do this participatory reading, the next thing I do after we do the echoing back is um, I'll ask them to begin to collect communally the images, words, phrases that repeat. And you will be amazed at how that makes you discerning about patterns, which is what literature is about. And um, satisfying patterns, you know, delightful patterns. Um, And then when you do it again at the end of all this time, you basically have geniuses in the room. I mean, it's shocking to me. It's shocking. And so one of the things that quells my fears when I turn towards teaching seminarians who are other adults, and I think, what do I have to offer them, you know, is that um, we're we're just actually going to go do this together and things are going to come because they are already cultivated. And together we're going to um, unearth things that they know things but but that the poems and the communal experience are going to draw out um and you know i mean this is a platonic idea of remembering what you already know and um it's also a christian augustinian idea i mean of course plato had this idea of the soul pre-existing the body which we don't believe in exactly but um but augustine knew that um, because God is in us, because Christ is in us and inhabits us, um, knowledge of Christ and knowledge of um, even the things of God, you know, the created world and even the human artifactual world, it somehow already is present and has to be called to. We're not just a tabula rasa. And so, I think this is a philosophical and theological underpinning for this kind of teaching that we've just really lost track of. Thank you. Um, uh, I recently, uh, just actually over uh, this nativity season with family, um, we enjoyed doing the echoing exercise uh, that I had first learned uh, in in your home with, uh, I think uh, Chris actually pulled it out with a number of us that were visiting and uh, Mm. we all enjoyed that together. And it's such a simple, simple exercise. Um, And, you know, we're a family, uh, my siblings and I, who've, you know, we've um, performed plays together and all of this sort of as a a part of our family culture. and uh, and yet, despite all of this, kind of my dad's a literature professor, all of this kind of um, you know richness and sophistication that we have and enjoy, um, everyone was sort of astounded at the they enjoyed mm-hmm. that experience. There's the simple mm-hmm. um, read we you know read a poem out loud, and then uh, everyone without any commentary would just repeat back uh, short phrases or even a single word uh, that had. Uh, somehow, um, got, you know, got their attention, and the, just the delight of such a simple activity oh. together was was wonderful. So, um, where where can um, you mentioned in you know in your Orvieto teaching uh, narration? Uh, that's a Charlotte Mason uh, technique or reference. Mm-hmm. I see a sort of theme of using incredibly simple things. In uh, you know, you're primarily teaching teachers and pastors and adults at this point in your career. Uh, you know, with fairly sophisticated students using uh, elementary, you know, grammar school level um, methods. Um, but where where can people read? You've mentioned a few resources, um, but uh, you know, are there um, where can people read about narration or some of these other mm-hmm. things? Some of this is your own, you know, your your own practices that you've uh, developed. But where would you point people? 
That's a good question. Um, I did at one point do the Charlotte Mason training myself um, with Bill and Marianne at Ambleside in person. And I did that because I had this intuition that all the things I had been working on and gravitating toward as a teacher, they had codified in some way. And I did find that that was the case. Um, I mean, their method is perhaps a little more stringent in its rules. Um, but I don't think you have to adhere to the stringency to, to benefit from the methods and the practices. Um, so St. John's also does some of the St. John's College um, of, uh, you know, kind of drawing on um, uh, Socratic conversation that asks a question and then seeks to delay the answer um, with many voices joining in and um, close textual attention. Um, I, I know that you've had some books written for the press, I think by Jason Barney, is that right? Uh, on this method. Uh, the first time I came across it was through Susan um, McCauley. Um, I guess she's a Schaefer, Susan Schaefer McCauley, for the children's sake, which I read when my first child is now 31, um, was entering school. Um, and but, but then recently, I, I was doing a little preparation for my teaching of the Aeneid. And I was just sampling like the Yale Open Courses. Um, I think I looked at one of Wes Callahan's courses. You know, I was just sampling like a whole variety of people um, in their teaching methods. And I realized that every good teacher narrates. If you're reading fiction, but even, even not, even history, Everyone narrates, and some of them are really good at it. Oh, the great courses, I use that too. Some are really good at it, some are less good at it. Some are really engaging, some are really tedious. Um, but they all narrate. And so this is not rocket science. This is, um, it's not even method, it's instinct. You hear a story, and in order to talk about the story, you have to recreate the story. Um, you hear a passage, and in order to talk about the passage meaningfully, you have to make sure you heard the passage. So really, whatever means you can use to make sure you heard. And I think I would just say the only other thing is that my experience with poetry taught me orality. It, it reminded me how much our ears and mouth and even our chest buzzing um, knows and wants to be present in the air, you know, and um, how much those things have been suppressed over the last um, many years. And how do we bring them back? How do we use, draw upon their intelligence? And so what I love about what you just said to me in your own family, and even as you characterize my teaching, is that it's a very simple method. It doesn't matter what your sophistication is. It, you could do it with five-year-olds, and I have, and you can do it with 50-year-olds who are the most educated people. The most educated people might be too petrified. I mean that literally, like turned into rock. To, to, to access it, but a lot of the people that you meet who are well-educated are not petrified and who, who love these things. They still are so full of a text, full of the sound, full of things from memory that they love, you know, and they cherish, and they're not doing it to impress you. They're doing it because they have dwelt in it and they want to share it with you. So um, I think I'm just saying this is really... Um, intuitive it's primitive it would ha it's what happened with oral literature before we wrote things down and i think in our times that are so digital and in which we're so distracted orality has a new role to play in particular that's deeply connected to our kind of primal biological selves but that's also um accessible in our abstracted, uh, distracted, multiverse world. That's kind of ele elemental and simple 
need that we have for this is, uh, um, I recently came home to me in an interesting way, the young lady you were referring to as a kindergarten student uh, up through a current adult friend of yours. I think I know who you're talking about. And uh, she and her husband um, gave me hospitality for two nights and their singing of the Psalms, which you were talking about, your insights into Psalm singing with her as a fellow practitioner, mm-hmm. um, blessed me so much uh, just on this trip. And, uh, and and the hospitality that, that they extended, but that psalm singing um, of theirs mm-hmm. as a couple um, was a deep aspect of that hospitality that mm-hmm. they that they extended to me, bring, bringing me into their own um, home, the, the prayer life of their home, which was which was a very beautiful, beautiful um, prayer life mm-hmm. that they shared. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it it is. Um, it is basic, and uh, and it is uh, such a deep need um, mm-hmm. that we have. Um, you have written uh, at least two books that I'm aware of, uh, a book of poetry and um, a book with the press uh, on teaching poetry, mm-hmm. um, The Bright Mirror. I might be missing uh, other, other, I know you've written articles and things like that, but I'm wondering if you can speak at all. I know um, current writing projects you typically can't talk about, but but is there anything uh, anything you can share about, uh, you know, your current writing projects? So um, the book that I wrote of poems um, is called Bright Mirror. I didn't publish that with the press, but the book that I published for the press was The Art of Poetry. And I was trying to make poetry accessible to people who tend to be afraid of poetry. Um, and I had help from a student, Don- Danielle Sam, who really did a lot of interpretive work in the teacher's edition um, alongside me. Um, but the projects that I've been wanting, I, I have another book of poems that I want to write about. I mean, that I want to write, and I probably have 30 of them already, 40 of them already, but I'm trying to, I'm in that process of, of, you know, making these poems into a book that's in dialogue with itself, um, that's in harmony with itself. And um, I'm writing about something that Marilyn Robinson talks about in her books, which is called, that says, she says in, in the book Home, each person is like a little civilization. And, um, and she says that... And, and an Aeneid connection exactly. as well, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she talks about, um, Lewis talks about the fact that we've never met a mere human um, and that the, all the civilizations that we meet will um, die but and have died, m- many of them. But the humans we meet, they'll be eternal. So both of those are saying the same thing in different ways. And um, this mystery of motherhood, of, you know, like bringing these civilizations into the world um, that will never die and watching how hard it is for them to be established. I think this is the singular um, puzzlement of my adult life is, you know, why is that so hard? Um, Even under the best of circumstances, not just the worst, which which are often talked about, but even under the best, um, people seem to almost not make it, you know? Um, How is that? I don't know. I don't understand it. And um, trying to pursue that mystery. And I'm, you know, my reading of the Aeneid was part of it. I wrote poems in relationship to the Aeneid because, of course, the Aeneid is very much about establishing a, a civilization. And I wrote in dialogue with it as um, the voice in the voice of a mother and the civilization of a child. Um, and you know, the kind of griefs and losses and hopes and fears associated with that. So I'm working on that book of poems and um, that's probably all I have to say about that. But then the other thing is um, I'm working on, well, I haven't started yet, but I I really want to work on this story of Osip Mendelstam, the poet who lived during the Bolshevik revolution, who lived and died during that period. Um, he was a Christian. He was uh, Jewish. He was um, one of the shining lights of his generation. Um, he died in the gulag. So, wow, not a happy ending, right? He's the one whose wife curated his work in yeah. such a remarkable way. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's I'm going to write about. I'm mm. going to write that story. I'm going to try. Mm. I have not written fiction before. I'm going to write it as fiction and also in picture book form. And I can't imagine a publisher wanting to take this story. But I want to tell it. I want people to know how many brave, loving, joyous people who kind of keep going back to their life and trying to make it happen again. Like they keep loving their life again, even when it's lost all of its light. You know, this man, I mean, he was exiled from, from St. Petersburg. He, um, they had to live in people's living rooms, like with a little towel or, you know, blanket in the corner of a living room. They had to forage. I mean, it's just so hard. And I think that's tied to this question that I have in poetry, which is like, how do we do it? You know, and I want to look at people's lives who did do it. And um, I want their help, you know. But even as I've read him and um, loved him, I have just felt this sense of, um, I don't know, if Osip Mendelstam can do it up until the end, if he can praise up until the end, I can do that too, you know. So I want to do credit to that. And I'm just so afraid that I won't be able to do it. And I think I'm hoping that that, deep desire will overcome my um, craft limitations, <laughs> which are many. <laughs> well, maybe that will also be an encouragement to other uh, writers out there. Uh, that's so. got to be a fairly um, basic part of, of the writing uh, vocation, I would think. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for all of all of um, all that you've shared from your teaching uh, and, uh, and, and just a little bit at the end of your writing work. It's been delightful uh, to have an opportunity to talk to you a little bit more formally yes. uh, and, and, uh, and to share some of this with uh, teachers and administrators and homeschool parents on Classical U. Thank you, Jesse. I, you know, I, I really don't think um, these are things that I would have access to perhaps if I wasn't talking to you because, um, you know, all the and I, I hope people will hear this, too. Like this is part of what we're doing is um Whatever it is we are to each other, that's part of what helps us access what we are. Um, and it's not in a vacuum, you know, it's like with people who are, who are laboring side by side with you through all their lives, um, trying to get at these hard things. There's just no formula, you know, there's no thing you can adopt and turn on the switch and make it happen. But um, what a loss that would be if we could turn a switch, right? Because then we wouldn't have this depth of co-laboring together. So I, you know, want to thank you for your co-laboring in all the ways that you have. That is very, very precious to me. Oh, well, that's very kind. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. <laughs> you. Thank you so much for listening to the Classical You podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com, and our teacher magazine, Altum. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical U.